time for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network. With me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, and your designated driver. Now, it could be you're completely new to the show, hold tight, mind the gap, and all that, but it's just as likely you've been aboard before, in which case, you'll be safe in the knowledge this is the same free-speaking, big-thinking, eclectic, and eccentric show for everyone as ever whatever decade or century you started watching reading or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero doctor who we chat about it all on this show all views are encouraged and there could even be a few laughs along the way so come and step into our tardis and share this journey together here with us on type 40 this time it's the return of a favorite strand of ours had a bit of a rest but it's back with a vengeance we're breaking out the casket the ancient smoldering casket that's marked type 40s frequently asked questions about time travelers for a plunder and a grovel <laughs> around the mind of a fellow doctor who fan whatever can all of that mean yeah well the general idea is that we all like a nose through other fans shelves don't we and to make contact with their minds for the first frequently asked questions of 2022 we are joined by a writer an author and uh, a doctor could it be <laughs> we're going to find out when we welcome alexander leiths to type 40. hello are you a proper doctor alex and if so of what <laughs> i am I, you, yeah you sprung that one on me that was not the question i was expecting to get first that's for sure <laughs> come on that must be a frequently asked question i guess it must you're right um i became a doctor the long way around because mm. i only became a doctor in 20 depends when you classify the official crossing of the line but i suppose 2016 17 was when i became a doctor yeah and as you can tell, I'm quite old. So I was quite old when I became a doctor. In fact, it's almost as if my life was set up for a bunch of geeky sci-fi coincidences. Uh, so I became a doctor when I was 42, which of course is the secret of life, the universe and everything. So we're told by a reliable source. And I am a, <laughs> and I am a doctor of time and space. Really? Technically, I'm a cosmologist, but yeah, that's what I do. I mean, that's what I did. I, I My research was into um, space-time configurations, alternative space-time, and dark energy and dark matter. That was basically that was a, the quickest way I've ever summarized my entire PhD, but there you go. That's what I did. That's absolutely fascinating. So you're, you're kind of the closest that we could get on this show, really, to, really, to uh, Omega. Then. Omega? To what, <laughs> because he started the whole Time Lordy thing? Maybe, maybe. Well, he was a stellar engineer, wasn't he? Yeah. And therefore, yeah. he'd have some idea about cosmology. Did they even have TARDIS technology before Omega? Uh, no, they didn't, did they? Because he gave them the energy on which That's their right. technology was based. Uh, the only reason I know this is because I've just, I'm in the middle of re not rewatching, <laughs> even watching the John Pertwee Doctor, because I'd never seen first, second, and third Doctor properly until okay. now. Um, oh, wow. And now I've just watched Omega's first appearance in The Three Doctors, which is fantastic. You've just seen these stories for the very first time? Well, okay, to be fair, The Three Doctors is one of the ones I had seen before, but it was a long time ago when they repeated it on BBC a thousand years ago. So even that was a distant memory. I have seen obviously one or two of the first and second Doctor stories as well. Um, I probably saw Tomb of the Cybermen um, 
Doctor, the second Doctor, and all oh, Seeds of Death or Doom. I always forget which is which. But his second Doctor, <laughs> I see, saw them, and I've seen Unearthly Child a couple of times, and that's about all of the first Doctor I've seen from memory. And then, yeah, most of it I hadn't seen until this last year, where I've been tracking through it all, and because there's nothing on TV worth watching, I went back and watched all of the original <laughs> first three Doctors, which I hadn't seen before. That's a pretty good uh, high bar already, but just in case people do feel they may have seen or heard your name elsewhere. Where may that have been for the Doctor Who community? Let me just grab the things I've got next to me. There were these big Finnish books from like, again, a thousand years ago, <laughs> uh, yeah. in which I wrote one story in each of these. They're actually all edited by John Binns, good friend of mine. One of my stories is in each one. Uh, so what was that, in order of uh, appearance? Oh, Universe of Terrors was the first one. Life Science was the second one I was in. And Short Trips 2040. They're all short trips volumes, basically, yeah? And uh, I have never been recognized since you said, where might people first recognize you? Well, I'd be damn surprised if they did. Once in my entire life did I get recognized as having written for Big Finish, yeah? Go on, where was this then? Uh, I nearly this? fell off my chair. Okay, it was really bizarre. It was on my journey to becoming a doctor. So when I first be started becoming a doctor again, which was actually at Queen Mary University of London, I actually joined, uh, I not joined, I was selected for Queen Mary's University Challenge Team because I decided to do the trials and apply for it because see i was having a whole uh doing the things that i should have done earlier in life later was kind of the running theme from about 2012 in my life i did onwards. wonder if this had been a bucket list item going on the old university challenge then. yeah i just i got there it was just started the phd i thought well oh, they're doing trials for that let's let's do that never done that before and this isn't my first rodeo for uni i have been to uni twice before you've done the hat trick now then three stints is it, is it three? Oh no sorry i lied Four. I've been at the university four times. Okay, this, um, this is just showing off everybody, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'll run through that later, but uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But since you asked me about the being recognised, let's deal with that. So yeah, I went. I, I made the team, and me and the team were sat yeah. together. And one of the one of the other team members, whose name escapes me, she said, "Are you the Alex Leiths?" And I went, "What?" Is <laughs> my first reaction. <laughs> so, I said, yeah. Yeah, didn't you write for Big Finish and Doctor Who? And I only fell off my chair and surprises the first time wow. I've ever been recognised in anything I'd ever done. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, that is me. How? And she was obviously a diehard Whovian, really diehard Whovian to recognise my name. Like yeah, so that was uh, the first time I was on the University Challenge team, and then the next I was on the next year as well. <laughs> Both times, you, uh, Queen Mary never made it to the TV rounds. So close, but no cigar, as they say. I, know, I think you can yeah. probably tell that we're in for quite the discussion here with Dr. Alex himself about who knows where we're going to go with this Doctor Who cosmology writing, mm -hmm. probably all three. So stay tuned. Now, Alex, this whole strand, you're probably wondering what you've let yourself in for. <laughs> this is the general idea. The thing is, we've had the Celestial Intervention Agency themselves on the uh, on the temporal blower. There appears to be a few gaps in your data extract information that they haven't managed to pick up from the time continuum, and we're going to try and fill all that in just to keep them off your back with these Type 40 frequently asked questions. Now, what I can say that you can relax and don't stress. You are amongst uh, fellow uh, companions, fans and friends. There are no wrong answers and no one is on trial. So that's all coming up. In the meantime, though, we have to remind you that if you want to do some real time traveling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away if you know where to look on the device 
of your choice. Yes, there are dozens of great conversations, reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs, and deep dives with all our regular panelists. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. There'll be more about all that a little bit later on, as well as a couple of minutes where we shall be making contact with the matrix of all knowledge. To us, that's the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other shows and all those other fabulous conversations that are going on over there. Hold tight, Dr. Alex. You're about to head head first into the matrix with the Type 40 Frequently Asked Questions. Okay, so where I find, Alex, and maybe you do too, that uh, Doctor Who fans are everywhere. And whenever, however, and wherever that we connect with the other fans in our lives. We, you know, we could meet through friends, for example, through family, or deliberately at conventions, or even at work. It's never too long before we get nosy. We test one another out and test the parameters of our own fandoms with a combination of uh, queries and questions, and they're always the same ones. So to save anybody who may come across you, you know, you may get recognised again, for example. So if anybody anybody is tempted to ask you these questions, you can just say, go and listen to Type 40. I told them everything, and you can make a sharp exit if you need to. And I think the very first one, the most obvious of them all, is probably this. Uh, Doctor Who has been running for 50, nearly 60 years now in one form or another. But can you remember how old you were or where you were when you first became aware of something even called Doctor Who. Yes, but the memory isn't um, one hard cut-off, really, because uh, the fourth Doctor is my Doctor. Um, We were born at the same time, virtually. I mean, I came into existence in 74. He came into existence in 74. And so by the time he left in 80 or 80, was it 81 the very last one he did? 1981. Yeah, I would have been six, maximum seven, probably six still. Since my parents plonked me in front of the TV a lot, uh, despite my, I'm sure my mum would protest a great deal at me saying this, but I know I got plonked in front of Doctor Who from before I could easily appreciate it. Knowing exactly when it began, I don't, when my memories of him began is very unclear. I have memories of K9. I think I've got vague memories of Leela, possibly in my head. I've got more firm memories of Romana, and then probably more Romana too, because it's every time it's getting later and later in my life, and it's getting easier to remember. I think the clearest memory of a story that I can identify would be um, City of Death. So I get um, the impression that these are smatterings, really, images mm. of people and things. Uh, because I think a sh- I think a show like Doctor Who has a very particular look and a particular energy around it. Obviously, it helps when you've got a show that uh, begins and ends with, I would argue, the most iconic theme tune in TV history. You know, you feel yeah. like you're going somewhere. But I found, for example, when I was a child, even before I could follow a story, track the arc of a character, I knew I was watching the same show and started to pick up on not just the lore of it, but the language and the rhythm of it. Yeah, this is why I can't tell you when it came in for certain, because it ingrained itself into every aspect of my being. Works its way world. into your life from the from the blind spots, I think. Yeah, all of the, the, the iconic Doctor Who things really embedded themselves deep in my psyche early on. So the scarf, Tom Baker, uh, K-9, and Romana. And, you know, Romana is kind of important to me as a character. 
but all of that that was like the crystallization of perfect doctor who to me because that's what it was that's what i was inculcated as a child as this is how it should be and also tom baker is a dynamic exciting crazy guy running around leaping around saying insane things even as a child i couldn't really get every nuance and every subtlety of what he was saying because there were some strange and sometimes adult gags thrown in there which would be passing me by but you slowly learn this stuff as a child and it would have had a fundamental impact on my life as an edu education of how stories should work the earliest memories of doctor who like city of death are into the douglas adams era as well and that has douglas adams had much more impact on me not that much soon thereafter when hitchhikers came out on radio we would listen to that all the time so all of those influences had a massive influence on my life and were you the kind of child that was sort of raised partly raised by the tv is this one of many shows that you remember sort of along with yogi bear cartoons and oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, tiz was and, and that kind of thing or, or was doctor who kind of the outlier no, no, no. There was. There's. A, <laughs> I, I have read as well. My parents did read to me, and I, I was. I, I also read myself, and I was quite keen on reading. But that said, did watch a lot of telly. Um, Tiz was was one of the things. Yeah, I remember Tiz. Oh, really? Oh, god, yeah. Um, and also, I was watching Battle of the Planets avidly, been running around late seventies into the early eighties. And yeah, Battle of the Planets was fantastic. And in and watching that, I knew there was more going on than they were letting on. I didn't know that they'd cut this down from a manga, uh, from an anime, and there was a lot of stuff that Seven's Arc 7 was an add-in to cover the, the, the masses That's of death. That's right, yeah, yeah. But I knew as a small child that they were hiding something. I knew there's no way they could have ex evacuated the entire city before the Mecca came in and destroyed everything. That's just not right. That, that, even as a small child, I had suspicions that they were hiding stuff from us. So I loved it, and I knew there was something weird going on too. Um, yeah, these things had a... They made you think. <laughs> they made a small child think. <laughs> and even though, Alex, you know, particularly for the younger ones watching, who have always, they've grown up in an age maybe where all TVs have always been widescreen, have always been flat, TVs back then occupied a much smaller place in the average living room, didn't they? And yet they were, even though they were physically smaller, they were bursting with life, bursting with colour and with oh, story yeah. and with spectacle. And yet you see an old TV now that we would have had whether it was say 22 inch at the very most they look so small and and yet they were they became the focus of the the average family home and and something that would be um, kind of mined for for ideas very very influential and like a window on something bigger than than our world yes no i, I remember sitting far too close to these tvs i remember that's the, what i always remember you have to remember sit cross-legged sort of right next to them I remember the static raising the hair on my cheek uh, uh, <laughs> up to, to touch the, the screen. I get that stupidly close yeah. looking at the individual pixels. I was really fascinated by the television, how it worked. <laughs> my parents uh, got color TV very late. It was the 90s before they got a color TV because they wow. wanted to pay the lower license fee for the black and white. So I grew up on black and white. Uh, even in our generation, that was a s idiotically um, anachronistic way to live. Uh, but oh, I yeah, saw all right. this stuff in black and white, and yet my imagination has it fully colorized because my brain filled in the, the gaps. And uh, Battle of the Planets is full color to me, even though I saw the whole thing in black and white. You mentioned Tom Baker, but just because somebody is their very first doctor that they ever see, it doesn't necessarily mean that they end up being their favorite and they classify them as, as their doctor. So, how do you feel about Tom now, like 40 years on, and having seen much more Doctor Who? You know, is it the fact that he is simply your favourite and your entry-level point, 
it's really funny. I was at some point in my history aware of the previous Doctors, yeah? And I saw them and I thought they were, from the few snatches I got, I appreciated the earlier Doctors. Um, so I, I had no problem about people li loving Hartnell. I always sound very cold. And it's only recently I got to appreciate the true genius of his portrayal of the Doctor. Um, Patrick Trout has always been fantastic in every role I've ever seen him. I was instantly warm to him, as with John Pertwee as well. So those having them as massively important doctors was no problem for me, even as a kid. However, as soon as Tom Baker died, he hasn't died, not yet, thank God. As soon as <laughs> the fourth doctor fell off Jodrell Bank, or uh, what they were pretending it was at the time, my appreciation, my interest in Doctor Who did start to wane. Um, from that point downwards. So no one could match him in terms of dynamism, craziness, dialogue, fun, um, adventure. It was the next person up was Peter Davison. And great though he may be as an actor, and he did do good Doctor Who. I, I'm not going to oh, yeah. deny that, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't as good as Tom Baker. And he would forever in my mind be the wet vet because we were having all creatures great and small bombarded at us constantly. When I say we, my parents were watching it constantly and I was being subjected to the, what at the time I felt was a very boring show. Um, okay. I could See, this is, this is absolute heresy to me because Peter Davison is my doctor. I'm but very sorry. I've, I've never spoken to anybody before who subscribes to this sort of wet vet line that we, you know, it was it was but said at the time. I'm talking about never... my, my response to him age seven or eight yeah, and I yeah, still yeah. felt Oh, this isn't quite the same. This isn't quite good enough. And this is yeah. a child's response to it. Okay, maybe it's a particularly precocious child. I don't know. But I didn't appreciate Peter Davison as much. Colin Baker was barely there long enough to appreciate. I was very unsure about him, as even as a now growing up child, but still a child. And then we got till Sylvester McCoy. Now, compared <laughs> to the current era of Doctor Who, he looks like a freaking genius. But at the time, uh, me and me and my mates in the Whovian, uh, who liked Doctor Who, we were not well impressed with the guy who was fighting Bertie Bassett, the the guy who made the literal cliffhanger. Yeah. At uni is where I met um, my oldest, perhaps firmest Doctor Who friends, who were also co-authors and, in one case, my editor for Big Finish. We were living together, and when the TV movie came out in '96, I think it was '96. And Sylvester McCoy got gunned down in the back alley in New York. We three of us <laughs> cheered. We were like, "Yes, finally!" <laughs> because we were not enamoured of the Doctor. Let's put it that way. <laughs> now looking back, I can appreciate yeah. all of them much more. But to return to your original question, the Fourth Doctor was my Doctor, and he was the pinnacle for a reason. I I really like Troughton, and I really like what I'm seeing of Pertwee, even though I've seen a bit before. They are stunning and fantastic and brilliant. But Tom Baker still stepped up a level. It, it was still, wow, okay, this is nothing like we've seen before. And they were, in each of their cases, they were nothing like they've seen before. But he managed to step it up one more level. But unfortunately, I think from Tom Baker onwards, the levels slowly stepped downwards. This is clearly something that's that stayed with you. I don't think I thought about it that deeply while it was happening. Yeah. But I definitely thought about it subsequently. Why did I react this way? How did I think about these characters? We reflect on our reactions now, later in life, don't we? Because we know, we know ourselves so much better. Yes, true. Plus, I was dismissing the first Doctor by having, having hardly seen him as a child, yeah? Now gone, going back and watching the whole of the first Doctor such as we have it, I'm like, damn, this is really good. When Barbara and Ian leave 
I actually yeah. felt, I think, oh God, that, damn it, they've left. And I never thought I'd feel that watching any of the first Doctor stuff. It was like, wow, this is, no, the characterization was really good. The writing was very strong. It was remarkable. I mean, Terry Nation did some fantastic scripts for the first Doctor. And it wasn't just, he didn't, he wasn't just for Daleks. That wasn't the only thing he did. So yeah, I, I now really appreciate the first Doctor. Weirdly, Troughton was running with some weaker stories in a lot of cases, but as an actor, his characterization, boom, he pulls it through so strongly. Pertwee was just fantastic, and the script writing in many cases of Pertwee had gone up again to a much higher level. It's like, ooh, ooh, this is really good. But watching the three doctors, the thing that struck me most was, and I didn't think I would ever think this, when Troughton comes onto the screen for the first time, steps out from invisibly and grabs his flute, yes. my brain went, oh, there's the doctor. And I'm like, whoa, I never thought I'd feel like that. I never thought I'd think that. Having watched John Pertwee for everything up to that point and gone, yeah, this is great, this is the Doctor. The way Troughton just commanded the screen when they were both on, it was like, that took me by surprise. It was like, oh, oh no, he really is good. He, he, <laughs> he is actually stealing the screen from John Pertwee. Yes, it's, uh, it is like a bit of a, uh, a tug of war, I think, albeit a playful one and a respectful one between yeah. the, two, uh, the two main Doctors in that story, an absolute delight. Turning our attention to the, the co-stars of Doctor Who, because they are often our entry points, aren't they, as, as viewers? That's what the companion was supposed to be there for in the first place, those yep. audience identification figures yeah. that would lead our way through the double doors and out into a, a universe full of adventure. But I was wondering, have you got any favourite companions in particular? And more importantly, I suppose, as somebody who's who writes and creates stories now, what combination do you prefer? One Doctor, one companion, or the whole, the whole crowded TARDIS idea where there's several of them? Have you got any preferences and who are your companions of choice? All right. Um, I, I can imagine I'm going to upset a few people and upset a few... Um, uh, received wisdoms out there in the world. That, um, <laughs> Go on. Many of the things you've just said, in fact, the companion is the viewer's window into the Doctor's world, and that you should have few or uh, few or num great numbers of companions. I don't think that's. I think it's ir irrelevant, largely, because I think it can work either way. We've had up to three companions on a regular basis with the first and second Doctor, which is you know a healthy number to have rocking around the TARDIS. So I think we can deal with a large number, but going back to what you asked me um, what's my favourite companion and how I enjoy companions Romana is my favourite companion but I have less of a need to throw the audience a lifeline in having a dumbass human as his companion so having another Time Lord as a companion was no problem for me now maybe yeah most people are running around dragging their knuckles on the ground and, and, and you know, can't think about Doctor Who without having this bridge between them and the world of the Time Lords. I never really needed that. Uh, and maybe it's because I was introduced with Romana in the role. I mean, technically, I suppose um, Sarah Jane and Leela were, Leela I can vaguely remember, I suppose. But it was Romana mostly there when I came in. I didn't need a human companion to help me through this. Romana was enough different from the Doctor in terms of her personality and watching her strengths and weaknesses that they worked off, they played off each other. Having K9 there, yeah, he's subordinate because he's a freaking robot dog has to do what he's told, but he was snarky. He had sarcasm. He, his dry responses often were undercutting the Doctor. And uh, I don't know, did I need him to be human to appreciate K-9 as a character? No, I was quite okay with him being a robot dog. That, that worked fine for me. So 
Romana, uh, I'll come back to Romana now because I think that is probably my <laughs> my favourite companion for multiple reasons and reasons that I've gone on to use. My favourite Romana is Romana One, uh, Mary Tam, and the reason for that is the reason she was brought in and what they failed to do. The reason she left, indeed, uh, it was pitched to her as being you'll be basically on a par with the Doctor. You're not just going to be a screaming girl in the background going you save me save me you'll be there as a dynamic influence in the TARDIS and she you really get that impression in the first few stories as well that's that particularly when she's totting a gun in the pirate planet you know she was there as a dynamic a um agent a uh, dynamic character with agency and someone that the doctor sometimes gets bested by and sometimes the doctor yeah, yeah. best because he has experience and he has a, a certain level of imagination and, and craziness that she doesn't have they supported each other. This was the perfect dynamic, but unfortunately it did get weakened towards the end. And then we get Lala Ward, who is the the wimpy Romana in my mind. She's like, yeah, yeah, she's a little bit wet. I mean, she never really reached out to me in the same way. And I guess ever since I've kind of liked taller women with dark hair, certainly with dark hair. Um, <laughs> Romana had probably a fundamental in, uh, influence upon my, my, my appreciation of women. Um, anyway, that, that's neither here nor there. Um, that and Wonder Woman with Linda Carter, of course. But anyway, the, back back to yeah, what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm on the same page. Yeah, but yeah, Romana is is my ideal character because because they they do work together as a team. And I guess there's a little bit of the. It's John a very Steve. precise balance between particularly Mary and Tom's dynamic, isn't it? And I do think I, I don't quite agree with you about about Lala's uh, Lala's characterization. I think the writers. Do attempt to strike the same balance there they're probably a harder combination of characters to write for because they're both obviously highly intelligent characters yes but, but it's still information and it's still a relationship that's got to reach out to children yeah uh, do you think that's not possible do you think they weren't doing that with uh, romana one i think it's perfectly possible i think they did it mostly uh, beautifully but i think yeah. it would have taken a lot more care yeah, it would require uh, <laughs> it would require an author with uh, a modicum of intelligence, competency, and uh, some human uh, understanding, uh, possibly to even have interacted with other humans. That that would probably help. Um, because somebody like Sarah Jane Smith, obviously she's an intelligent woman, held that, yeah. had this incredible career. I think Sarah Jane is a different kind of intelligent, and therefore the dynamic is quite different. And the way the stories were written. For example, when Tom was with Liz, they had that kind of best friends dynamic. There was something very sort of Christopher Robin uh, hanging around with Wendy from Peter Pan about all of that. Yeah. With Mary Tam's Romana and Tom's Doctor, they were at the very sort of most uh, students rebellious who were trying to change the world together. You know, they would have, if they'd have been stranded in Oxford for too long, they would have probably have started some sort of underground counterculture small press magazine or something. Yeah, that's, yeah. Or, that's or a they... fire, one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> probably both at the same time. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, and that's, by the way, that's not to say I don't think the other dynamics don't work well. Yeah. We can't make great stories. I, I think, yeah, I love the, I've seen them because I've seen a lot of the, the Fourth Doctor. I've seen the, the Elizabeth Sladen, um, Sarah Jane Doctor stories and they're fantastic and I love their dynamic as well. But you wanted me to tell me what I thought the best was. Yeah, well, I course. still think my favourite and best is that one where you have parity. And it does require a certain level of um, skill and understanding to write for those characters. I think the most important thing is don't be freaking sexist. It's very easy to write 
of male-female duo characters um, that have parity, as long as you're not stepping on your own toes, worrying if you're being sexist, and just write two characters, characters. which interact with each other, who are intelligent. One happens to be male, one happens to be female. They will have different characteristics because of that too. Uh, in the stuff I've been writing recently, my Romana, um, you know, gets her eye distracted by guys around from time to time, um, which the Doctor definitely doesn't. Um, there are, they have different different ways of responding. Uh, there's also elements of the Doctor's jealousy, and I think Tom, not sure Tom Baker and Romana ever got that. Um, but I know that, oh, but later Doctors certainly have. So there was uh, Peter Capaldi, when, uh, God, Clara Oswald uh, ends up with a boyfriend, the Doctor is definitely jealous of the fact that he's now got a rival, even if it's not, even if there's nothing sexual between him and um, and Clara Oswald, there's a an attention being pulled away by this other character, and he's jealous. Those dynamics are there in Doctor Who and can be used. Really interesting, isn't it? And Capaldi is uh, such a consummate actor. He mm. can do quite a lot with the lines of the material, which were quite sparse in addressing yes. that. And yet you can see a lot of it on his face as the character is processing. I don't think the character really understands. The Doctor doesn't always understand why he feels the things that he does. Yes. And and that's the uh, the beauty of, I think, of, of the Capaldi incarnation in particular. I, think, I just think it's a, a wonderful uh, study of a Time Lord over, over a two or three season period. Yeah. In the modern era, Capaldi is, I think, the best Doctor, even if served by some of the weakest stories. I think a great many people feel along similar lines, along similar lines to that. You know, we've, we've talked about the Doctors and the Companions, but for, for many people out there, particularly, I think, members of the public, certainly, certainly members of the press, the real stars of Doctor Who are, in fact, the monsters. So I was wondering, have you got any any favourite monsters? Which do you prefer, actually, the the monsters, as in the sort of the, the, the rubber monsters, the, the men in the suit kind of characters, or the trundling robots, or the, the human face of it all, of, of, a, of a villain? Have you got any preferences? Hmm. As a child, the Dalek, possibly the Cybermen, but definitely the Daleks were, were just scary, which is weird, because they were just what, trash cans with a gun on them. But as a child, they scared the willies out of me. They're, they're just something amazingly horrible about them because they're basically trash can Nazi. But yeah, that was obviously the influence, uh, the inspiration for the Daleks. It's very clear in the way they behave and act, yes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they are the paramount villains, really. When we were growing up, that was the height of villainy. Uh, that was, you know, you couldn't get more villainy than that particular regime that grew up in the 1930s. And the Daleks were very much the same thing on wheels. But I did like the Master. But I only saw the Master in full glory. Uh, I've seen a couple of his stories before in Delgado form. Now, having in the middle of, in fact, rewatching um, the third, rewatching, watching the third Doctor, uh, Delgado. Even though he predates me and he's not my master technically, he just is brilliant. Uh, his portrayal. He. <laughs> He's literally chewing the scenery, but he, he has some subtlety to his portrayal. Uh, his character can be charming. His character is quite bright, although he does do some stupid decisions from time to time. But he's very much the the evil um, foil for the Doctor. And they, they worked so well together. John Pertwee and Delgado as an yeah. antagonistic pairing was just brilliant and it's a joy to watch isn't it even in some of the longer stories as well which i believe drag their heels a little bit mm. whenever those two guys are on screen opposite one another it's it is really charged yeah yeah it's yeah some of them 
you've gone a bit too long, but yeah, he can help lift it along. It's like when he appears in a long running story, it's like, ah, oh, okay, well, at least we've got the master. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how I feel about it, too. I mean, I, I grew up with, um, with uh, Anthony Ainley as the master, and so it, was, yeah. it wasn't until the 90s when the story started coming out on VHS that I really got to sort of get familiar with. Roger Delgado was somebody that I used to see maybe on clip shows. I kind of think I knew. They must have run, maybe repeated a couple of Pertwee um, ones while I was growing up. And I kind of knew that there was this master before the one we currently had. And of course, Ainley kind of superficially looks quite a lot like the Delgado master. Um, so you can see them running into each other in your head as a child. But only now, looking back, do I fully appreciate Delgado was just a master. <laughs> Appropriately enough, a master of his craft. And it's like, whoa, okay. They did really well casting there. And it's a damn shame he died. So as a writer yourself, I mean, do you find that on the, the needs of an actual, of a story that you want to tell and, and a threat that you want to bring upon the Doctor and whoever he's associated with? Yeah. That some, in some instances, a lumbering monster may fit the story, fit purpose. And in other cases, it's quite important to have that, few, that human face who can, even if they're aliens internally, Mm-hmm. where they look like they're uh, contemporaries, peers, or, or a physical equal. And, it's, and uh, it's a writer's job to know which of those two is best employed to deliver the story that they want to tell. Damn right. Ideally, a bit of both. Um, in, okay, in the latest stuff that I've been writing, season 12 and season 13, the ultimate threat in both seasons, I guess, is the fact that our universe is just one tiny bubble of a universe embedded in a greater higher dimensional string theory m theory based 11 dimensional bulk um of which there are terrifying that's easy for you to say (laughs) yeah uh in which which horrible monstrous things way beyond our uh, capacity to imagine or empathy uh or sympathize with exist as these 11 dimensional creatures above us beyond us all by definition uh, now those are the big lumbering monsters like they might be hyper intelligent or they might be dumb as a box of spanners but in any case they're very very alien from us and completely yeah. um, but completely could swallow us whole in a blink of an eye that's your lumbering monster there you go but having the human villains is really important as well and very helpful to have so um i don't know how much how much should i spoil what i've already put out there <laughs> not at all, not at all. Because yeah, I mean, it's it's as good a point as any to bring in the fact that you, you are a writer, you've you're a published author, and you've continued, haven't you, to develop your own ideas based on the Doctor Who brand, unofficially picking up the story to ver- at a, a particular, at a precise point in its history, but taking it in, in another direction entirely, haven't you? So, what was the initiative behind? your own Doctor Who stories, and where do they pick up from and, and, and why? Well, okay, there's a, there's, there was two strands to why I started writing again. I mean, there's a big gap between the big finished ones I flung at you early, earlier. I finished writing those in 2004, about one year shy of them rebooting the, the Doctor Who. And I didn't write anything really, except on and off a couple of things, 2009 I maybe chucked one story out. Um, hmm. Until 27, uh, 2018, 2018 probably, I started writing again. Big gap. Um, but there were two reasons why I did it. I did reuse my big Finnish stories, reading to camera, and in one of them, my editor Eon um, co-starred as one of the characters I'd written for the one in 
uh, what was it, 2040. And I wanted to do more work with her. So I thought I'd run out of stories. What am I going to do now? I better write some new stuff. Simultaneously, I had heard nothing but bad things about the current Doctor Who. Um, and so I decided to run with, uh, I started to start writing Doctor Who again. Um, and went from the point where it went sour, which was the final Capaldi episode. I wanted to set right what seemed to have gone wrong with Doctor Who. To be fair, I even thought Twice Upon a Time had some pretty heavy flaws in it. So my first episode, first chapter in season 12, the Doctor regenerates, but he regenerates into essentially himself. He regenerates into the Capaldi Doctor again. Now, technically he's not the same 12th Doctor because he's really regenerated, and that becomes then the impetus of some of the reasons for the title of season 13, because he's not 12 really, he's 13, but we call it season 12 for the first season. The first Doctor does find the 12th Doctor about to regenerate in, the Antar- in Antarctica, and then nothing that happened in tw- twice upon a time then occurs, because I do think the Moffat really dropped the ball on that one as well, wrote it badly, wasted David Bradley as a fantastic actor doing the first Doctor badly because of the way Moffat wrote it. So I just ran from the point where uh, first Doctor finds the 12th Doctor and took it in an entirely different direction. And I think gave a more realistic depiction of the first Doctor as well. So we reduced the entire Chimball era to uh, a fever dream that the Doctor had while he was having his regeneration cleaned and scrubbed in the shower. And then the 12th Doctor stumbles out and uh, has to deal with the problems uh, that are going on in the universe as he discovers them towards the end of the first chapter. And there are problems which it's hinted at very early on might have been caused by the Doctor himself. We'll find out. And as you go on, villains are revealed and some of them are what have a more human face and some of them have a very much alien god, huge, huge lumbering aliens okay. from multiple dimensions. Uh, it's a bit of both. Back to your original question. Uh, yeah, so I did that. And I was writing writing this stuff uh, because I felt there was a, a gap in the market, as in the gap being an absence of Doctor Who. And uh, then I continued because I wanted to, I had more story to tell. And so season 13 came uh, along just as a natural... So you're rolling out your own narrative, narrative of successive episodes that make up their own series, in, in effect, yes. with with themes and long-running characters mm-hmm. and Thrill of the Week-style stories too thrown in the mix. Yep. The 12th, season 12 was very much uh, more episodic, although it does have an overriding arch and a half arc. It has an arc for the series and a half arc for the midway point where there's a cliffhanger and resolution. You know, all classic stuff, but each story is more independent in season 12. Season 13, which follows it, is more trying to do what Jimbal uh, tried and failed to do which is to tell one narrative over the entire arc. So the arc is more um, defined in season 13, if you like, or it's more central. Although each episode is self-contained, and generally, although some do have cliffhanger, which then starts off in the beginning of the next episode. So it has a lot of traditional Who aspects as well, but it's also trying to show that you can actually do what Chimble had hoped to achieve successfully with a modicum of competency and skill. Storytelling is something that clearly has um taking up a great deal of thought and and your time and it's a craft isn't it in itself and so when you when you look at uh, when you look at the things that may have inspired you the stories that the stories that might nourish or thrill you particularly in regards to doctor who there are hundreds of them just in the tv show alone let alone 
the audio stuff. But have you got a favourite Doctor Who story or, or a couple of stories that you can you can just name for us off the top of your head? Or do they change all the time? Well, they have changed over time, particularly since I've been re-watching the first three Doctors. Uh, the Keys of Marinus for the first Doctor really stuck it, still sticks in my head to this day because that was just... I think That's a, a way, really that... interesting choice because a lot of people don't like those sort of anthologies within serials within anthologies but you do yeah. I, I, I like them too what do you what do you find to enjoy in that it, in a weird way it's it's almost where doctor who starts being like doctor who as i know it from the fourth doctor onwards you know where mm-hmm. they're, they're they're really traveling on a journey and they're going from place to place there's lots of weird places they just find as they stumble along the way and there's different um drives uh, for each section of the story. Uh, I mean, there's an overarching thing they're trying to do, uh, get their MacGuffin for the guy they met at the beginning who ends up to, spoilers, ends up he's assassinated before they get back, but um, <laughs> it, just had a, it just had a lot of really interesting imaginative um, locations, and you, and you, you end up scratching your head, I wonder how these are connected. Are they on the same planet? Are they on different planets? Are they jumping from planet, just place to place on one planet? Is that acid sea all over the place, or is it just one localised acid sea? There's just so many <laughs> questions raised by it, but also, you are immersed in an incredibly strange, diverse world, using diverse in the true sense of the world. There the were many things going on in different places. And this was like, wow, this is really imaginative. I think that was a, another Terry Nation story, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. He was brilliant. He's not just the Daleks. He can do really great stories full stop. And people should remember that. Uh, he And he continued to do great stories into, as I'm fi- finding out, into the third Doctor, certainly. Um, I'm currently watching The Dalek Planet, is that it? Planet of the Daleks. Thank you, that's 1973. Yeah, uh, so that's where I'm up to at the moment. And uh, that's a bit of keys and... Uh, it's more like The Chase. That was more like The Chase, because it, it started with yeah. the uh, the frontier in space, and it goes straight into a Planet of the Daleks, and they it's one continuous story. Um, it's kind of reminiscent of The Chase in that respect. Um, but yeah, this was yeah. Uh, so stories that stand out. There you go. There's one. Keys of Marinus does stand out for me, and I think it does indicate where Doctor Who was going to go and did well. Anything that stood out from your childhood, little little stories, little images. Those images you talked about at the top of the show. Mm. Is there anything, for example, that you remember from your childhood apart from City of Death? Yeah, it's funny you say that. The first thing that came to mind is the City of Death because when you see. Um, which Glover is it? John Glover? John Glover? Villain. Oh, that. Julian Glover. Julian yeah, Glover. Yeah, Blank Scarroth. Yeah, the brilliant Julian Glover. When he takes his uh, false mask off and you get that tentacle head, that scared the yeah. crap out of me as a kid. So did me. It stayed with me for years and years and years as well. Oh, yeah. That one, poof, that was visceral. That just got me to the core. There was a story from Peter Davison that actually stuck with me. I can't remember the details. When I get to sure. re-watching Peter Davison, I might be able to do this better, but uh, there were a lot of Dalek humans running around with guns on their hats. Yes. And, and they were getting infected by some god-awful disease that was making them basically rot to bits where they stood. That's the one. That's Resurrection of the Daleks from 1984. Thank you. That one stuck with me, mostly because of that Excitement. bloody disease which was making people just rot where they stood. That, that really... And so there you go, there's a Peter Davidson one that sticks with me. That one scared the willies out of me as well. Obviously, that was written by Eric Sayward, who was the script editor at the time, and, and he would write uh, one more Dalek story the following season. And he was a big instigator of a lot of the violence that Michael Grade took great exception to when he 
effectively cancelled the show in 85. Yeah. He felt that it had gone totally uh, wild in the ways that it shouldn't have done whilst not being as sort of buttoned down in a sort of budgetary way. And in other, other respects, that it could have been like it was a completely undisciplined mess of a show, mm. which, I, you know, I always argued that that wasn't the case. But Eric yeah. Sayward was an excessive writer. And the fact that you've just described that scene, that certainly did happen. We actually saw people rotting. That was the story that pe- that featured people smoking on screen too. It was quite an adult Doctor Who story. Yeah. Visually. Yeah, that that one, yeah. It's not that I hated all Peter Davison. I mean, that, uh, that one really did disturb me as a kid <laughs> a lot. But in the best <laughs> possible way, you know, uh, it made me... Uh, well, we love being disturbed when we're, when we're kids, don't we? You know, yeah. It keeps us awake at night. It's time, Dr. Alex, that we shoot off into a parallel dimension just for a couple of minutes. One filled with other great geeky conversations and amazing analysis, courtesy of our friends on all the other shows across the Fandom Podcast Network. Here's a few words about all of that. Then you can meet Dr. Alex and myself back here for more of the frequently asked questions in a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalised you there, and we can even clone you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. If you head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll find a store full of 
all the team colors for all of those podcasts on everything from the t-shirts to phone cases and tapestries huge tapestries and a galaxy full of other items treat yourself treat your other selves and it all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain so everybody wins I'm back here with Dr. Alex here for more of the Type 40 Frequently Asked Questions. He hasn't been scared of yet. And uh, yet he is uh, in the comfort of his own home, surrounded. I think I spot a Doctor Who scarf trailed behind him. Maybe he hasn't got room anywhere else in his house. Maybe it's full of all manner of things. So I wanted to ask you, Alex, are you a collector? Because a lot of Doctor Who fans are. We fill our environment, don't we? And we, we cover our person often with Doctor Who trinkets or, or bits of merchandise or t-shirts or whatever that all trumpet loudly our love of this universe, of these characters. Do you collect any particular line of merchandise? And if so, what and where do you keep it all? No, strangely enough. I don't <laughs> actively collect um, okay. a lot of Doctor Who stuff. Most of the Doctor Who stuff I've got were actually for the purposes of filming. Um, or they were gifts. And one of two things I have bought just because I, I was, for example, in Forbidden Planet, I, I have a fourth Doctor sonic screwdriver, which has come in very handy for the filming recently uh, over the last few years. But I did buy that just because I wanted that particular sonic screwdriver. And that's about it. The <laughs> coats, I just tend to wear long coats anywhere, anyway, um, when I do wear long coats. And the ja the <laughs> so the 12th Doctor, Ja uh, suit I have, I bought before the 12th Doctor started wearing that. I think within a couple of years before he came on screen wearing his black, snazzy black suit with the red lining. Yeah. But I already had that. And that. Oh, well, that's really handy. I, I, I can now just wear that as a 12th Doctor. That, that's perfect. Um, the There's a... You probably just, yeah, you can see it. There's a pink TARDIS up there. Yeah. That okay. was a joke present from my brother because uh, he I think he was taking the piss out of the female Doctor stuff. Uh, and so he sent me for Christmas um, a bottle of his slow gin inside that uh, pink TARDIS that he made. He's very, very, very artsy and very skilled, my little brother. Um, he's, he's also a journalist for ITV, so try not to hold that against him. He, he made that, which is very cool. Uh, other doctor. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a few canines dotted around the place, uh, which, again, mostly built, bought, bought for filming. Uh, there's a Dalek up there too high. Oh, you can see the bottom of him. You can just see the base of the Dalek, I think. Just. So you have a carefully curated cave of, of various items that stimulate yeah. and uh, inform your work. I, I get true, but that that Dalek was a present to me. Um, it was a gift from people I used to teach uh, in another regeneration, and they knew that I liked Doctor <laughs> Who, so they bought me a, a remote control Dalek, which I need to repair slightly. But uh, yeah, that, that still works yeah. amazingly. Uh, ten over ten years later, I do like that. But again, other people have given me these things. That does kind of segue into my next question. Now, you've mentioned that you're not particularly a collector, but you've managed to see you've got various items of costumery. Because I was going to ask you, we, we now have this phenomenon, don't we, of cosplay, mm. where people will go out in public and to events or whatever dressed as not just their favourite humanoid character, but a monster. I wondered, have you ever cosplayed any particular Doctor? I think we know the answer to that already. Or any monster... And if you haven't, who would you like to cosplay that you haven't? Well, uh, most of the things I've cosplayed have been for the purpose of filming. Uh, either the earlier stuff, the um, 
Big Finish stuff that I read to camera. Then the stuff between uh, Big Finish and the new stuff, which, in, which is the three masters. So that tells you one thing I've done already. I've done all three of the classic masters. And I really did enjoy doing that. So I did the Delgado <laughs> master. I did uh, what uh, John, my editor, at the, uh, who I co-wrote that one with, actually. We never got it published. And so that was exclusive to YouTube and now one of my recent books, Regenerations Past. The three masters, which John and I wrote together, uh, the second master we called Crispy Master. He's the one uh, from, uh, <laughs> you know the one I mean, uh, who's... We know the one from the Deadly Assassin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Crispy Master. And then I played the Ainley Master. I did, because all three of them are working together to try and uh, defeat the Doctor or at least get, uh, dominate the universe, um, depending upon which master you are asking at any given time. Because uh, we were playing up the, the differences in their characters. So the first Delgado master is the most competent master and the most, you know, he, he's got a more of a clear idea to start ruling the, ruling the galaxy, if not the universe. That's his aim. <laughs> and if the Doctor gets killed along the way, well, that's kind of cool too. But he seems to have he, everything buttoned down, doesn't he, the Delgado master? Yes. Crispy Master, we, we kind of fashioned his character on Compo from Last of the Summer Wine. Uh, it's just a completely crazy itinerant um, hobo. And then the Ainley Master was kind of like the Delgado Master, but only in sort of a thin veneer of competency because his mania was basically, I wanted his single-minded thing was to kill the Doctor. So the Ainley Master was looked and acted a bit like the Delgado Master, but event, eventually just comes out as this, this one-dimensional Doctor-killing character. You do strike me as being slightly fascinated by the master and the various sort of uh, leaves to his book. Oh yeah, yeah. The master is, is very um, the master is very good in that respect uh, as, as as character in all his renderings. Um, I, Some I would write the character off, wouldn't they, as just the Doctor's Moriarty, and, and it's it's no no better and no worse than that. But do you think there's more more going on there psychologically over the decades now that the character's been around? Yeah, even in the earliest references to the Master in the original um, Doctor Who, there's an implication that the Doctor and the Master were friends at some point. So it's slightly deeper than the Sherlock Holmes-Moriarty connection, which is simply that they've run into conflict and therefore they are now, uh, they are now enemies, yeah? There's, there's something a... almost biblical about the Doctor and the Master's Yes, past. it's something a little deeper, yeah, um, which is cool. But... I don't think there's anything wrong with him being the Doctor's Moriarty because that is one of the reasons you need him there as an intelligent foil to the Doctor, someone who can be as tricky uh, and as imaginative in many ways as the Doctor, but with a massive gap in his moral compass, <laughs> a missing chunk of ethics, <laughs> um, which you know the Doctor isn't always great on the ethics front, but you know he has something there, whereas the Master basically doesn't for most of the regenerators we've seen. Obviously, Missy kind of grows a bit of conscience uh, towards the end, um, which is interesting as well. I think mm. some of the stuff they've done with the Master towards the end. I, I still think Missy was uh, a stupid idea, but I think um, Michelle Gomez's characterization of Missy was fantastic, and I think her portrayal was brilliant. I just think the obsession with the BBC of gender swapping is that why it started there i'm largely of the same opinion as you big fan of michelle gomez I think she's a, a from all the evidence i've seen a, a, a lovely person a very uh, encouraging of the doctor who community a fantastic actress who played that part beautifully and yeah. developed it so so well and yet yeah i would rather they not have gender swapped that character i do think it damaged the master i yeah. think the same with the doctor it's a masculine character i mean it makes more sense within the narrative of of Doctor Who and with what we know about about 
that person, that creature. This is somebody who who hasn't a problem in uh, crossing species to survive. So why yeah. would they think twice about crossing gender? But as a viewer, you know, we receive the story. And Doctor Who is a very visual show, so we we see a, a man becoming a woman, uh, and the dynamic and how that may similarities and how it may differ. And it's mm. up to us, I think, to judge whether we whether we buy it or not. It doesn't make any of us good people or bad people, depending on how we how we read that. Yeah, nothing in Time More Society that we've seen up to that point suggested that people were flipping gender all the time. And I think the one thing in the favour of the Missy, uh, the Master Missy swap, which is also its greatest flaw as well simultaneously, is that, yeah, I can see the absolute psychotic, insane master swapping gender as a disguise, yeah? Which is essentially what he's done. That's why the Doctor is so shocked when he discovers it, because he wasn't expecting it, because it was really... Yes, that's, really... Why, that's why it does work. Yeah. But, on the other hand, if you are worried about representation, having your first um, transgender, let's put it that way, transgender Time Lord being a psychopath doing it for the reasons of hiding, uh, disguising themselves, <laughs> or just being a psychopath, might not be the greatest piece of progressive um, portrayal you could, you could do. So there, there are so many things wrong with the way it was done and how it's handled. Yeah. It, was just, it was a can of worms that never needed to be opened. They meant well, I suppose we could we oh, yeah. can say that. Hearing you talk about Missy and the Master and villainy, you know, I think we're getting a little Freudian here. So I'll try and sort of steer you away from that, and maybe okay. we can touch. We can touch on some of the other areas in which the show may have inspired you. You know, as a writer, are there any particular writers associated with the show who may be script editors, people who were there for a long time, or people that sort of came into the show and, and then uh, told their story and left? Are there any inspirational figures that you can sort of point to? in the history of, of Doctor Who as maybe uh, a reason why you studied cosmology, for example, or became a writer or wanted to teach? Is any of that in the mix for you? No, some of it does. I mean, in terms of writer, uh, I don't think I knew at the time, or didn't realise at the time, but Douglas Adams as a writer is a major influence on me. Even though I don't tend to write straight comedy, straight comedy, yeah. contradiction in terms, but you know, that's what Douglas Adams did. I tend to write more actual sci-fi, fantasy that type of stuff but not with a comedy uh, central theme to it that's not to say I don't do the old comedy nod in my writing and you know there, there might in the latest series there's one episode that is definitely heavily a comedy episode uh, and taking the piss a great deal but <laughs> yeah so Dr. Sam is a major influence um, so yeah I could say that influenced my writing I as a kid wanted to explore space I wanted to be an astronaut. What kid doesn't? And Doctor Who has to be a large part of that. My compromise of becoming eventually um, a Doctor of Cosmology is, I guess, me exploring space and time in a very Doctor Who-y way. Yeah, you're probably right that Doctor Who had, a, <laughs> had a, an important influence on my development from a very early age, yes. In terms of writing, I wouldn't have said, I, I know now who wrote a lot of Doctor Who. I know Terry Nation did some brilliant writing. The name's gone out of my head. Who's the other one who did lots Terence Dix. Thank you, Terence Dix. But they weren't the things that I was reading growing up. I was reading classic sci-fi like um, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Isaac Asimov, oh, really? and later uh, fantasy authors like well, Michael Moorcock is probably one of the most influential authors in terms of the way I write. H.G. Uh, Wells as well um, is quite a heavy influence. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is a fairly heavy influence on the way I write. I'm not, wouldn't say I was pulling knowledge, uh, knowingly pulling 
writers out of Doctor Who as my influences. My influences for writing are generally more writers of fiction. Uh, oh, Dumas. Mm -hmm. I, I do like Alexander Dumas. Uh, that's not really sci-fi at all. But no. those authors... Adventure, oh, though. Adventure yes, fiction. Adventure. Exactly. Those author, authors influenced my writing more than directly Doctor Who authors would, apart from Douglas Adams. Interesting, because obviously you've spoken about City of Death a couple of times, and Douglas Adams has such a distinctive voice, and yes. the choices that he makes with how he views the Doctor Who universe, it's certainly like nobody else's. The mannered nature of British comedy up to that point, and British storytelling yes. that he brought to Doctor Who, the etiquette of hero versus a villain mm. and uh, and that's why he found a willing partner in crime in, in tom baker who was partly a little bit bored with what he'd been doing up to that point yeah but very much of, the, of those same leanings anyway yes i think douglas adams also understood how narrative works in terms of how to write an adventure and therefore was able to subvert it so i mean I'm not any of those writers. I'm a competent writer. That's as far as I go. I'm not a genius like Douglas Adams. I'm not H.G. Wells. I'm not Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But I do have a vague idea of how a narrative should be constructed, and therefore I can play with the ideas as well. So I do play with them. And that's probably where Douglas Adams comes in the most. I play with the language, and I throw in lines that are odd and silly and are jokey into what is not necessarily a joke story. So I do mess around with things in an Adams, Douglas Adams style in some ways uh, while telling stories that are sometimes quite grotesque and horrible um, <laughs> or nasty things happen. But there's always a comic tinge to it because really you have to appreciate the, the grotesque. Uh, the grotesque things, there is a humorous aspect to them no matter how horrible. And you kind of need to reflect both things in your writing. Then there are moments, of course, of pure uh, emotional um, tragedy. And then you get those moments as well. You need to be able to flip from one to the other. How many stories make up one season of your Doctor Who? Well, season a set easy. amount? It's an easy one for me to do. So season 12 has 12 episodes, 12 chapters. And season 13 has 13 episodes, 13 chapters. <laughs> You've got, we've got to amuse ourselves in whichever way we can, though, haven't we? Yeah, I think we all agree that. <laughs> Definitely. It says that your stories are available on Amazon, Alex. Want to tell are. people a little bit more about that? What kind of additions? Okay, shall we start with the free stuff first? So if they go to my YouTube channel, all of Season 12 is on there. Most of Season 13, and it's still being produced, is on there. About half the stories in Regenerations Past are on there because I um, haven't read them all. But yeah, you can get them on my YouTube channel easily for free, uh, which is um, Dr. Alex. Um, and I, the link, uh, I think the channel link comes up as Dr. Alex 1 because Dr. Alex is a short URL, wasn't there? But anyway, or you can go to Amazon, Co UK, Com, whichever one you want to go to. And the first one that was produced was season 12, uh, which was perhaps more like a Moffat um, Davies series, season, and that each story was more standalone although there's a couple of two or three parters in there and there's an overriding arc to the, the entire season the story season 13 is more one overall narrative but they're still episodic it's still 13 episodes and each chunk does stand alone to its own degree but is part of the overall story and then between those two I stuck out Regenerations Past which I wasn't ever intending to do initially but then while I had a bit of time on my hands between the two seasons um, you know, my editor made me realize that 
my old stories might be worth reading and they're all out of print. All the big finished stuff is no longer in print. So we stuffed them all into Regenerations Past and all the stories I've written for small fanzines and the like, and even one or two that never got published. It's an anthology of yes. your work from across, across the years and decades. Right back to the very earliest ones, which initially I was embarrassed to look at again, but uh, Eon made me realise that they have some value. So they're all in Regenerations Past. Quite a body of work, quite a collection of stories that you've told. What is it you enjoy most about writing? Is it the process or is it when you get to host them, when you get to read them and, and get to see how they're received? Yeah, you're making me laugh because it reminds me of what Douglas Adams uh, said. I, I most enjoy the uh, the feeling of having written. <laughs> I see. What he famously said. I don't think, I, to be fair, I don't think I'm quite as uh, bad at procrastinating as Douglas Adams was. I actually do quite enjoy starting the writing, but I know in the past I was much worse. And I didn't start writing quickly or easily. Uh, even if I had an idea, I, it'd be the worst thing in the world to get my pen on paper. But the second it hit it, bang, yeah. then it would come out. But I was in the past terrible at it. Now I do enjoy writing and I don't just enjoy having done. And weirdly, completely opposite of Douglas Adams now, when I finish, I'm sad and I want to do something new because I get sad. <laughs> That's the hunger. That's uh, compulsion, I suppose, to, to push on, tell more stories. When does uh, season 13, when does that close out? So there's only episode 12 and 13 to go. And I've recorded most of 12 and 13. Uh, it needs to be edited together. I've recorded the bits where I read yeah. camera. I've done most of Eon Ella's bits that need to be read to camera. And there's a few voice-only bits we need to fill in as well for other characters. But we're mostly there. So the next two weeks... Um, so Saturday coming and Saturday after, that will be the end of season 13. Excellent stuff. And so people will be able to binge all of a season, won't they? Absolutely. <laughs> At whatever point, Netflix style. Yeah. Okay, so before we let you go back into the time vortex, I've got a couple more questions. I mean, this one in particular, which I suppose you could say kind of comes out of the storytelling, really. We, we've spoken at length about Doctor Who. Of course we have. But I think... Another question that people often ask when we've been through the rounds of which doctors, which monsters, and all the rest of it, is, okay, do you watch or read or listen to anything else? Which other of those big sci-fi and fantasy franchises, maybe they've been around for decades, like Star Trek or Star Wars, or, or the Narnia books, for example, or maybe they're quite new things, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which of those other sort of geeky legends are you following or is it just Doctor Who for you? No, it's definitely not just Doctor Who. <laughs> um, I definitely watched Star Trek, particularly the original series growing up because that was all there was of Star Trek at that point. Yeah, I, I like Star Trek. Um, uh, Star Wars, I mostly enjoy in film form and to be fair, mostly enjoy in its original three films and everything else yes. I'm much less interested or care about. I don't think that's a controversial response when people bring up Star Wars, not in, not in this day and age. No, 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 no. Fair enough. Good. Um, <laughs> although I'm not afraid to be controversial. Um, yeah. I've um, got that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what? oh, I enjoyed Battlestar Galactica, both versions. I, I like the, yes. I've got the original um, on DVD and I've got the new one on DVD entirely as well. Um, I think I enjoy the original slightly more, but I enjoy both of them. But the reason I enjoy the original slightly more is you get slightly, despite it being the story of a of a society that's gone through an entire um, 
uh, had been genocided away virtually uh, a very yeah. not very cheerful idea you you come out a little bit uplift, uplifted in the original version whereas you come out kind of depressed at the end of the, of the new one but still good yeah, it's true yeah, I, yeah. i've got a similar kind of relationship with again love both shows and similar mm. frustrations with both shows yeah yeah um is that the golden age of telefantasy do you think the, the 70s into the early 80s yeah, tricky because the 80s you know, you, this is a much deeper issue I think the TV yeah. took a turn for the worse going into the 80s uh, and I, the only reason I think about this something I never really cared about or enjoyed as a kid but I much later on got back into was the Rockford Files and yeah. as a kid boring, old adult stuff don't care yeah. later I mean, in the as soon as that theme tune used to come on I instinctively knew it was time to fall asleep I found yeah. it that boring but I've recently gone back to it too I've just watched the first few episodes in fact yeah, so in the noughties, I got back to, I caught it on TV and thought, Jesus, this is really good. This is, this is uh, things that I kind of appreciated for a while. Um, 1930s film noir detective stories. This is 1930s de detective stories brought into the 70s, made up to date. Um, he was doing you know, Sam Spade type stuff. It was, and really well written and very intelligent. Getting the cons, the stuff to do with computers was really interesting that he was talking about in certain episodes as well. It was like, oh, that's what they thought at that time. Oh, that's what's going on right then. It's really well acted and well written. And by the 80s, Magnum was great fun, but it's nowhere near the same level. <laughs> and it's a direct sequel, uh, a direct replacement for, um, for um, Rockford Files, but it isn't quite as good. And oh, that's Belsario the produced both of them, didn't he? Created and produced yeah. both of them. But it, it was indica indicative of how the TV in the 80s really went off a cliff. Its quality was way down on some of the stuff that was coming out in the 70s, which is weird. I never really thought about that. Columbo, original Columbo, is really gripping watching. Um, and the 80s didn't really have the same level. So I think we had a big dip in the 80s is my, is my take home message from that. And it isn't just sci-fi. It was just everything had a bit of a slump in the 80s. I think that things in the 80s better. became more concept driven mm. and, uh, and more around the energy between characters than it did about telling stories, maybe. And I, yeah. I, think, the, I think the scripts, the week to week scripts became a little more incidental to keeping going certain dynamics developing you know particularly if you're talking about things where there was sort of uh, a will they won't they relationship going on mm -hmm. and there was a big a big gap of time where things now i enjoyed those all those tv shows but i think there probably was a gap of around seven or eight years where creatively most of those shows were telling the same stories on rotation yeah it probably it probably took a show like moonlighting to come along kind of yeah push out yeah. the boundaries there and then other shows uh, i think i suppose hill street blues and, and yeah. Shows like that sort of flexed, yeah. When you flexed those the, muscles. Moonlighting, I think you're absolutely right. Moonlighting did kick things into a new gear. Yeah. In the nineties, things developed quite considerably. In particular, telefantasy. But uh, these, all these things, have sort of ran parallel to uh, to our lives and, and popular culture, and yeah. uh, parallel to Doctor Who as well as as Doctor Who has uh, gone away and come back a little bit, or for one night. Mm -hmm. And went away again then came back again yes and has uh, sort of gone away again but is <laughs> hopefully coming back again you must have some hopes for the future of doctor who 
Mm. We're on the threshold of an all-new era of Doctor Who that's coming in the next year or 18 months. Have you got a couple of things that, you know, you've spoken about how the fact you're somewhat disenfranchised at the moment with, with how Doctor Who's been most recently. Yeah. But what would win you back to the show on television? Well, Russell T. Davis has got the competency and the skills to do it, but I don't know if he'll be able to extricate himself from this um, virtue signaling modern day politics, I suppose. Do you follow Russell's work elsewhere? Things like dramas like It's a Sin, Years Not and Years, really. that, that kind of output? I can only speak from a Doctor Who perspective. I know he's competent, more than competent when it comes to Doctor Who, and he has the skills, but will he have the courage to do something that will upset some people? I don't want to say it will upset most people. That you probably shouldn't aim to do, but he might have to upset... Nothing wrong with rocking the boat a little, is there? No, but he might have to upset a few people with very loud voices, yeah? I'm largely really hopeful, big fan of Russell, so I did wonder what your take would be on that. But, uh, Dr. Alex, you've been an excellent guest Thank you for answering all of the Type 40 frequently asked questions and uh, yeah, sharing a little of your fandom for this really special show. But that is the old girl starting up and calling time on this episode of Type 40. I'll be back with another one soon enough. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40. Where's that? I hear you cry. It's type40.podbean.com and we're on all the podcatchers too, depending on where you may go and get them. So I'm talking about Spotify, TuneIn, Podbay, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, you name it, we're pretty much there, adding new ones all the time. Or there's the Podbean app itself. We're also, of course, on the Fandom Podcast Network's own dedicated master feed, loaded with so many treats for your ears, weekly, sometimes daily. Please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality podcasts from the FPN. Maybe you'd like to have your say on all of this, the things that we've talked about with Dr. Alex today. If so, reach out to us through our social media content, Instagram or Twitter at Type 40 Doctor Who, or you can email us type 40 doctor who at gmail.com and if you're feeling really brave <laughs> you can cross the threshold into the type 40 facebook group head over to facebook enter type 40 into the search field there and we will appear it's a whole community they're sharing and uh, yes yeah, sometimes arguing about doctor who past present and future whatever's to come there you can swap your theories in the type 40 facebook group alex are you on social media and if so where can people find you to to find out more about what you may have coming what's going to be published or dropping on youtube what's their first point of contact with everything dr alex leeds the youtube channel is probably the easiest so if you comment on that uh, i will see it and i tend to respond to them all i do have a sub stack just started up but very few people seem to have seen that i made a dr alex facebook page the commercial one not my personal account which is to promote the books. Um, so you could find that as well. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Uh, anything else I can think of? I think that about covers it. Well, we'll make sure that all the links to all of your material, wherever people may find it, will be both in the description of the video and the show notes to the podcast. There'll people will be no doubt about where they can get on board and sample some of, some of these adventures, your take on Doctor Who, and whether it be the, uh, the season 12 stuff, the season 13 stuff, if they've not realize that you put out some new stuff or those classic doctors 
You can find me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, where I am uh, rumbling and groaning, posting and sharing about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. Try stopping me. Just one more question, Alex. Mm-hmm. We've got all of time and space to drop you off. Where would you like our TARDIS to take you in all of time and space in the fourth and fifth dimensions? This reminds me of the end of the adventure game when people who got zapped by the uh, the vortex ended up just floating on a rock in the middle of space trying to hitchhike to places. Where would we go? I'd like to go to the next nearest Earth-like planet outside of our solar system. Uh, Earth-like in terms of life supporting. It doesn't have to look like Earth because that would just be boring. But yeah, the next nearest one where we've got life. That would be interesting. That's the wildest answer we've had yet to this question, I have to say. That's it for this time. Thank you for your company, Dr. Alex. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, we'll speak to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. A Doctor Who podcast is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.